Those on whom his favor rests exult in the Savior's birth. That's what we're here to do this morning is exulting in his birth. We are those whom his favor rests on, the chosen ones, right? Praise God. And we acknowledge his glory and his greatness as we open up his word together. And we have this time when we can worship him as we take in that word to ourselves, understanding what our God has written for his church and applying it to our lives. And I trust that we'll be able to do that this morning. We're changing directions a little bit from our study in the Gospel of John. And for the next couple of weeks, as is the tradition of this season, and focus on the birth of Christ. And for the Christian church, sermons of this event or on this event during the month of December has become something of a strong tradition. And this is a season where we invest a lot of time in our traditions. And I, I, like many of you, don't think this is really Christmas unless some of those traditions are in place. This has to feel Christmassy to us. And I think our music is one of those big areas. As I turn on the Christian radio, there's a change in Christmas music that I don't necessarily adapt well to. I'm having trouble doing rap to a Christmas jingle. It doesn't, it doesn't strike me the same. I didn't, didn't grow up with that kind of tradition in Christmas music or hip-hop or the, some of the Christmas music I've heard on Christian stations sound like lounge music to me, and I just picture Dean Martin with a martini on the piano <laughs> and a cigarette and, and singing the glory of the birth of Christ. It just doesn't, it doesn't fit. And I know that many of you have your traditions as well. Some of those traditions you grow up with. And um, one of the things I mentioned in our small group Bible study is Christmas trees. That's one of them. And I like to drive by houses and look into the windows and see how they've done their trees, especially how they decorate with the colors and the lights. Are they solid color lights? Are they mixed color lights? And I would say predominantly White lights are the popular theme in many homes, and it's kind of what you grew up with. I grew up with multicolored lights, so I have a thousand multicolored lights on my tree. And one of my traditions is putting a train underneath it, which has nothing to do with Jesus, but it's what I like to do. And I know that many of you are the same way. You put these traditions into this holiday season because it has the warmth and the charm and the feel of a Christmassy kind of event. And one of those traditions that I think we have as a church, maybe spiritualized, because we tend to do that with our traditions, is the giving of gifts. And we recognize that as we give gifts to one another, we're doing so out of love for the person we're giving to, because that person is somebody that we do love. And when we look at the gift that God has given to us, we recognize God has given this gift of a Savior to us because of his love. Unfortunately, when it comes to the tradition of giving, as you watch some of the television specials and so forth, and the issue of Santa is brought in, that's where the the analogy ceases, because there's the old idea that we're giving gifts to the naughty and the nice, and if you've been naughty, you get a lump of coal, If if you're nice, you get a good gift. Well, we know that God is nothing like that. Nor are we anything like the nice. We did not make God's nice list. All of us were on the naughty list. And this is the focus of the Christmas story that I want us to look at this morning. I'm going to look at a slightly less traditional passage on the Christmas story, but it gets into the very meat 
and the heart of the birth of Jesus Christ. And I trust that we'll see that as we move in to our study of Galatians chapter 4. I looked at Galatians 4. We, we used Galatians 4 last Sunday to prepare our hearts for communion worship. And I used that text because this Sunday I want to use that same passage to talk to us about the birth of Jesus Christ. I was reading a pastor, a pastor's commentary this week, and he and his wife had a son. They didn't have other children, so they decided to adopt a couple of boys from Ethiopia. And he postulated, I guess in his mind, the giving of God's son, and he, he just put this out, that if he and his wife wanted to adopt those two boys, what would it mean if they had to sacrifice their oldest son to adopt those two boys? That's exactly what God has done. And we're going to look at that gift this morning from Galatians chapter 4. If you would turn in your, your scripture to the fourth chapter of the book of Galatians, I'd like to read the first seven verses. And I trust that you'll see clearly the Christmas story here. Paul writes, verse 1, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Father in heaven, as we open up this passage together, I pray that you would give to our minds and our hearts discernment and clear understanding on what you are communicating to us about the birth of your son. I ask that you would grant me the ability to speak clearly and well on this passage, but it's our hope that you will apply this to our hearts as believers, sanctifying us, enriching our understanding with the truths and the majesty of a Savior. And Father, for those here this morning that yet may be without Christ, would you speak and lead that heart as well, according to your power, your sovereignty, and your graciousness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We cannot help but see from this passage that God in his grace and in his love have given to us a gift in his own son. And I think it should be clear in the reading of this passage that the language of the Christmas story here is about family, is it not? It's about creating a family, about adoption into the family of God. And what this passage adds to the Christmas story is that Jesus Christ came into our world so that he, Christ, would make sinners part of his family. We were on the naughty list, in other words. And naughty is even too gentle a word. We are on the wicked and the rebellious list. And God, out of his love, adopted us by faith in his son into his family. The gift for us as believers is that we belong. We belong. This text, I believe, exposes the heart and the meat of the Christmas story. But it has to begin 
with where Christ began when he came into our world. And I believe the first three verses really show us that as it communicates something of the state of man, the condition of man when Christ Messiah entered our world. And if you're into filling in the notes sheets with the blanks and so forth, I want to emphasize two words, that of bondage and slavery. For most people who may celebrate Christmas, and this would include secular people as well as some Christians, they want this season to be filled with all the traditions and festivities that would promote a a spirit of joy and, and hope and gladness. We have to have that sense of charm and warmth in the Christmas story and in the Christmas season. And while this kind of sentiment is certainly true for believers because we see the coming of Christ as a joy and a glad thing, but what the true Christmas story begins with is gloom and darkness. And according to the prophet Isaiah, Messiah came to a world. He came to a people who were what? Walking in darkness. And they saw a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. That's as much a part of the Christmas story. And as much as we like to make this season all about the warm and fuzzies, and to some degree it should be about joy and gladness, this story is not complete. We're not going to appreciate the gift of God until we know where we were when Christ came, when Messiah came. This is about the plight of man prior to Messiah coming to our world. I was just listening to the Christian radio station on my way home this week from work. And the announcer was preparing to play some more Christmas music. And she just made the comment that what we need is just more people that will go up to others and say, hey, you're doing a good job, or at the very least, you're doing the best that you can. And we're supposed to build in a positive spirit during this season. And the purpose that she gave for this was to build the warmth and the charm of this this Christmas holiday season in a world that's gone crazy with the divisions politically and racially and divided over COVID. We're just all messed up. We just need that positive affirmation that you're doing a good job or at least you're trying your best. But what if we're neither? What if we're not doing a good job? What if we're not trying our best? Is it just being positive for the sake of sentimentality? And I'm not suggesting we create for ourselves or our homes a Christmas that is dark and gloomy, but we do need to understand that the Christmas story began with a world that is not doing its best, and it's not trying. This is not only what the prophet foretold, but the Apostle Paul knew the church needed to understand this about the birth of Jesus Christ. He writes these words so that we know what our past condition was like, such that we needed a Savior. And it's not as if Jesus came to our world to say, well, things are going pretty well for you. I'm here to make it better. He came to a world of darkness. And Paul is articulating that not only in chapter 3, but in these first three verses of chapter 4 as he's about to prepare the church to hear the Christmas account. The Galatian churches had become infected with a wrong gospel message. And so we begin looking at the Galatian community and who Paul is writing to as a people that had made a hasty retreat from the gospel. They had deserted the gospel. In fact, go back to chapter 1 and you will see that Paul says, you have deserted God himself 
because they began to embrace a false understanding, a false hope. There was a corrupting Jewish influence that had entered into the churches after the gospel had had a rich harvest in this region. The gospel was preached, and God drew many to faith in his son, and among these converts were both Jews and Gentiles. However, some of those Jewish converts began to teach, if you want to be saved, you've got to believe in Jesus Christ, put your faith in Jesus Christ, but you also have to adopt these Jewish traditions, these Jewish practices, or you cannot be saved, like circumcision or the festivals or the Sabbaths. What they began to preach and spread among the churches was a gospel of justification by faith plus works the works of the law of Moses. So Paul opened this letter with a stern rebuke to the churches for so quickly deserting the God who called them to faith in his son. And the reality is the gospel of God, the salvation of God is, and it always has been, justification by faith. Paul's made that argument in this letter. Even Abraham was justified by faith before the law ever came into practice, before the law was ever given. Sinners are drawn to the Savior by the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit who breathes new life into our spiritual deadness. He grants the gift of faith and provides salvation solely on the graciousness of God to save. It is not of works, Paul said, lest any of us would boast, Ephesians 2. Yet some within the Galatian congregations wish to hold on to their Jewish heritage, their traditions, and they began to teach a salvation by faith in Christ that must include keeping the law, or at least parts of the law. And in the opening of this letter, Paul further condemned any who were preaching such a gospel. They were to be accursed, anathema. This is a strong letter to rebuke what man had done with religion. The epistle to the Galatians is a strongly worded message to the church of Jesus Christ that he, the Savior, came into this world to deliver men from the bondage of the law which held them captive to their sins. This is the darkness of the Christmas story. Messiah came to a very troubled, broken, and wicked world. Then Paul moves further in the letter to show kind of an infantile spirituality and a faith that was simply not complete, a faith that was not understanding of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the Messiah. And in this part of the letter, chapter 4, and even beginning back into chapter 3, Paul is describing the condition of man in bondage as that of an heir to a father's inheritance. But as a youth, as a very young child, this heir has not come into possession of the inheritance until he comes of age, an age that is determined by the father. And until that time comes, the child is treated more like a slave than a son. Now, clearly Paul is drawing from the cultural practice of his day where you take a son of a wealthy man, he would be placed into the care of a tutor or a guardian. And this son had no legal rights, nor did he have access to any of the father's possessions or finances that would one day belong to him. The guardian was responsible for the discipline of this child. He'd be told when to get out of bed, 
when to get dressed, what to wear, when schooling would begin and end. He would be directed on what he was to eat. And at the end of the day, he would be told it's time for him to return to bed. It is also said of this guardian-slave relationship of the son of a wealthy landowner is that he would be treated very harshly so that later on he would learn to be a responsible adult. In our day, they would call that child abuse because that's exactly what they did. They treated them harshly. Now, in this analogy applied by Paul to both Jew and Gentile, though the law here is being used, which is a Jewish law, and there's a guardian in view. If you go back to chapter 3 and verse 23, there's a guardian in view in verse 24, I should say. And in verse 23, that guardian or that tutor is even represented like a prison warden. And while the law was given to Israel, what it represents is the perfection of God's righteousness and his standard by which his people are to live. Therefore, the law is good. It is good. And that law was to watch over God's people and keep them in God's ways. It was also meant to show that man would need a provision for their breaking of the law because he wouldn't be able to keep the law. Hence, the blood sacrifices. The animal sacrifices illustrated the necessity of a blood atonement for sin because God's people could never keep the laws of God's righteousness. And therefore, God provided in this law animal sacrifices that would give the picture that atonement would be needed to make payment for the sins of God's people. And those animal sacrifices pointed forward to the Messiah who one day would give himself for his people by his own blood. Paul had shown the law as both a prison guard that must keep the young infantile child shut up to a faith that was later to be revealed. And he shows the law as a tutor or a guardian that must lead that young child to Christ. Verse 24 of chapter 3, so that he may be justified by faith. The law revealed the righteousness of God, and without it, we couldn't know sin. The law was needed, but that same law holds man all under sin in doing so because none of us could keep that law. The Jews couldn't keep that law. So it held or or kept man in bondage, and it does this by showing that sinful man is incapable of perfectly fulfilling God's righteous law. And this brings us back to chapter 4 and verse 3 and the enslaving principles that man was living by. Again, we're, we're looking at the darkness of man's state, his condition, the bondage and the slavery that he was held in. In verse 1 to 3 of chapter 4, the spotlight is on the heir or the young son who's held in bondage by the law, held captive by the law to his own sin. And he will not be set free from this captivity until the date of his release by his father. Yet verse 1 says that the young heir is the rightful owner of the father's estate. He just can't take possession of it. And this picture is faith that has not yet come of age or those who have not been set free by the gospel through faith. It is a spiritual immaturity that is still looking to self-effort or man's own work to merit the favor of God. And this is what the Jews had made of the law. 
Because this is a description of both Jew and Gentile. And since this child is also called an heir who will one day take possession of the father's estate or inheritance, the heir represents those chosen by God for salvation prior to coming to faith, whether Jew or Gentile. Because in reality, God has declared his law of righteousness. Even Gentiles are subject to that law. And they didn't even know it or confess it. And that is certainly the context here at the end of chapter 3 of Galatians. And speaking to these Galatian believers, in verse 3 of chapter 4, notice that Paul joins us all together with a personal pronoun. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. This is directing our attention to those that would be chosen by God for salvation. Before any of us came to faith, we were slaves in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Now, there is some debate over what Paul means by these elemental things of the world. There are some that would argue that Paul's referring to spiritual beings, demonic beings perhaps, and spiritual powers that are opposed to God. While others believe Paul is referring to the basic principles of life in general. And in that case, Paul is thinking about the basic principles of life in this context that had to do with religion, including Judaism. If you look down at verse 8, we observe that Paul references slavery to idols or false gods. That would have been the basic principles that Gentiles lived by. While in verses 9 to 10, the worthless elemental things can be applied to the practices, the festivals, and even the Sabbaths that the Jews would observe as well. What Paul is meaning to say in verse 3 is that men have become slaves or in bondage to the elemental things of this world in religion. There were those that were living for false gods, trying to work their way into the, the favor of God. The Jews had taken the law. And they, they used the law to build their own self-effort to achieve the, achieve the favor of God. They were going to work their way into heaven. And from these, we can discern that all men were held in bondage to human religion that cannot save. In truth, even the Jews had treated the law as something that they, that they could keep so as to bring about their own justification before God. And Paul is saying... The law, you can't do it. You can't keep the law in that way. Because you can't live the law perfectly. It was a misuse of the law. God gave the law to show man's sin and to show man's need of a savior outside of himself since no man could keep God's laws of righteousness. Yet the Jews had come to practice the law to earn their own access into heaven. And they were so devoted to justifying themselves before God, they began to build on that law and add to the law their own traditions, their own righteousness, all for the purpose of of earning the favor, meriting the favor of God. So whether Jew or Gentile, men had put themselves in bondage under their own elemental things. If you look on the back of your note sheet, a quote by John MacArthur, he writes on this text, the elemental things of all human religion, whether Jewish or Gentile, 
ancient or modern, inevitably involved the idea of achieving divine acceptance by one's own merits, one's own effort. And they're elemental in that they're only human, never rising beyond the mundane to the divine. That's describing the elemental or the basic things that held men in bondage. This is the trouble we were in. In short, we could never save ourselves, but we kept trying to. We believed we could, but we could not. And applying this to the heir, every true believer, the heir of the father's fortune or inheritance, every true believer was once under the elemental principles that held us in bondage until the date set by the father for our deliverance. The time we come to faith in the gospel, in the true Messiah. We've often heard unbelievers refer to Christians as being slaves to our religion. With all the do's and don'ts found in God's word, they don't like those rules, they don't like those laws of righteousness, and they would view us as Christians as being in bondage to our faith, our religion. And in their view, they are free to do as they please, when they please, and how they please. And sadly, many Christians become very enticed by that perceived liberty And they indulge one's own desires and lusts as the world does. Yet what the gospel shows us, the very opposite is true. Apart from Christ, all men are in bondage to their own basic principles of life. And there's nothing in man's own contemplations that will earn them the favor of God, whether they're religious or not. The day will come, and we know this from our scriptures, when all men are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And there isn't a single one of those people that stand before Christ that's going to say, just a minute, Jesus, I didn't live by your rules. They don't apply to me. Because he will open his book, will he not? And he has scribed in that book the deeds of mankind, and he will condemn them by their own works. So men today can say, hey, they're free to do as they please. In reality, they're in bondage. And they're never going to be able to stand before that Savior and say, those rules don't apply to me. God be praised, those of us that are in Christ, there is no condemnation, is there? No condemnation. Because Christ carried our burden of sin. The glory of Christ's birth is that he came to a world that was hopelessly devoted to saving itself, but had no power to do so. It was a world in bondage to sin, in bondage to self-achievement, held captive by the law of God from which no man can escape. The only hope for Jew or Gentile must come from God himself. And this is where Paul takes us in verses 4 to 7. Here the whole Christmas narrative is condensed in a few essential truths beginning in verse 4 to 5. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is where we begin to examine the gift of God. We see the state of man held in bondage, a slave to their own sins, and the law of God kept us there. But that law was meant to show us we need help from God. He has to come and rescue us. And this is where Paul takes the church in verse 4. This is the gift of God. And the words we want to emphasize here are redemption and adoption. 
redemption and adoption. This gets to the very heart, the meat, if you will, of the Christmas story. It isn't so much about sentiment or warmth or charm or colored lights or gifts under a tree. This is the meat of the story here. It's about redemption and adoption. These two verses, verse 4 and 5, show the story of Christmas from a giver's point of view. And this is all about what God has done for his people. God sent his son. God sent his spirit. It's all about what God has done for his people. And the heirs of this gift, the heirs of this inheritance, were slaves and helpless to lay hold of salvation or the favor of God. But God, in his great love for sinners, acted on our behalf. And this is where we see God creating the great transition for his heirs, taking them from slavery and putting them into sonship, where he became a father to his people. By his authority, by his compassion, he is creating his own eternal family from the most undeserving of creation, from the naughtiest, if you will, because all were wicked. God took from that pool of wickedness, he transformed them from slaves into his own sons. The first thing I want us to observe here is that God is acting. He's acting on our behalf. And I think one of the truly outstanding features of the Christmas story is that God came to us. He wasn't waiting for us to come up to his level, to finally make the grade, so to speak, to finally commit ourselves to keeping the laws we should. But in the fullness of time, it says, God knowing man could never do so. When the time was right, God acted on our behalf because man had no ability to ascend into the realm of God's domain. He had no goodness in him. Not a single one of us had enough goodness in us to merit the favor of God. So God, out of his mercy, his grace, and his love, he sends to us his son when by his design the time was right. Verse 4 says that when the fullness of time came, God sent his son. What's that fullness of time? It is my view that we're not going to really know until we step into the presence of the Lord. Everything that God had arranged and ordained so that moment would come when he said, this is where my son enters into the picture. This is where my son enters human history. I've read that in part the fullness of time may include that the Jews had really ceased from idolatry. As we read the Old Testament, there's a history of going to the pagan nations as God's people and worshiping false gods and false, false idols. At this point in Jewish history, they had ceased idolatry. They'd actually returned to the law. The years of exile had come to an end. Israel had returned to their own land. The Old Testament prophets chosen by God to foretell of the coming Messiah. It had all been written in the book of God. The Old Testament prophets had proclaimed what they were called to proclaim. Some have even pointed out that the Greek language was in full use by this time when Christ came. And it was a common language used among all the nations which would aid in the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. The Jews had more recently developed synagogues. And this would be a centerpiece for the Lord's teaching when he came as well as the early church communicating the truth of Christ. There would be places for the gospel to be proclaimed to the Jews first, 
and then also to the world. Rome was in power at this time. So there were established highways and roads that provided for evangelism, the expansion of the gospel, the growth of the church. Rome would also provide the means by which Messiah would be executed according to the prophecy of Scripture. So politically, nationally, culturally, the time was right for Messiah. But likely more to the context of Paul's writing, the law had done everything God determined it to do. And it could do no more. The law had accomplished all that God had purposed for it. It was now time for his son to come in and do what? Fulfill the law. To live the law. To complete the law. That man could not. The old covenant had run its course. And in the mind of God, the fullness of time was now. The new covenant would come in. John Calvin wrote that Jesus came when the time which had been ordained by the providence of God was seasonable and fit. God had tracked human history. And he said, this now is the time for my son to enter. Not only was the time right, but God had the right person for what needed to be done. Paul says he sent his son. And this implies what the word of God elsewhere confirms, that Jesus Christ came from the realm of God, was with God in eternity past, and according to John 1, was God himself. It is of interest to us that in this passage, Galatians 4, all three persons in the Godhead are named here. Father, Son, and Spirit all providing for the Christmas story. Paul also agrees with Matthew, who wrote in his gospel these familiar words, as Tim read this morning. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Paul understood his Christology better than any of us. And he writes that when God sent his son, his only begotten son, he knew that God himself descended into our world to affect our salvation because man could never save himself. So God came to us. The son of God entered into our world. And then we witnessed the son bowing in humility to what he must do for us. At the same time, the son of God was born to a woman, it says. In other words, expressing that God came to us indeed, but he came as a man. It speaks of his humanity. And this, again, is an important part, an essential part of the Christmas story. When man was helpless to accomplish salvation on his own, when the fullness of time came, the law would show man powerless to merit the favor of God in his failure to keep the laws of God, laws that God had given to his people. Then God humbled himself and came into our world. This is how Philippians 2 puts it. Taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of his man, he, Jesus Messiah, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is here that God's Son bows to meet our needs. He humbles himself, setting aside his heavenly privileges and glories and taking on the form of a bondservant, a slave. This is what is referred to as the incarnation. God took on human flesh. 
And this did not occur in the usual way that new life is created. Rather, the Spirit of God caused God to be born of a woman. The Spirit of God descended upon Mary, it says in Luke chapter 1. And he caused this thing to take place. That's what Matthew was writing about in chapter 1 as well. The angel met Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. He was born of a human woman, but in a most unique way. Jesus Christ not only bowed in humility to take on our humanity, but Paul adds that he was born under the law. Jesus willingly submitted himself or placed himself under the law that he had written, the law that he had given to his chosen people. He himself is the lawgiver. And yet he came to our world as a man and he said, I will put myself under that law and I will show you what obedience looks like. And the scripture tells us that Jesus did not come to abolish that law, but to fulfill it. And he lived perfectly under all the temptations and the pressures that you and I live with. Yet he did so without sin, it says in Hebrews. By submitting to the law of God's righteousness, Jesus not only proved his deity by his sinlessness, but he also validated the pleasure of God the Father who approved his Son to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He not only submitted himself to obey the law, He submitted to the law to be the sacrifice, the ultimate animal sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats could never do what Messiah did when he shed his blood. So he submitted to that law by being the final, the ultimate sacrifice, blood sacrifice for sin when he surrendered himself, as Paul wrote in Philippians 2, when he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then Paul takes us, having seen what God did and acting on our behalf, and he said, this is then what the slave, the heir of the inheritance will receive from God. Because the son, bowing to the demands of his humanity and his submission to the law, the slaves receive redemption and adoption. And it is in this sense that Jesus willingly became a slave to the law in order to set his people free from the demands of the law. And by keeping the whole law, it would require Jesus to pour out his own blood as a perfect sacrifice for sin. If his people were to be rescued from their sins, from bondage, from slavery, and from their, their, their uh, being held captive to the elemental things of the world, somebody would have to redeem them. And the law demanded the spilling of blood or the giving up of life as an atonement for sin. But again, the blood of animals couldn't do that. They never could. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 10. And if those appointed as heirs to the Father's inheritance were ever to be adopted as his sons, then by the very law of God, they would have to be redeemed. Somebody was going to have to pay the price for their sins. And it couldn't be men. It had to be God himself. Redemption was the practice of releasing a slave by payment of a price. 
And in the case of man who is in bondage to the elemental things of the world, Jesus Christ surrendered his life on the cross to make full payment for the sins of his people. It was on the cross that God laid our sins on his son. Then God turned his wrath against his son that our sins deserved, that he, Jesus, Messiah, would receive the judgment that our sins had earned. And as the scripture says, he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Then having taken our punishment on himself, Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished. I've done everything that needs to be done because the wages of sin is death. Christ poured out his blood to death and paid that price. He is the redeemer. It was the death of God's perfect and holy son who made payment with his own life to redeem or purchase out of slavery those who were in sin. Slavery to sin, in bondage to the law, but the gift of the Savior did not end with redemption. And this is where Paul wants us to understand more fully, what did the gospel do for us? Yes, it redeemed us, but that's not enough, Paul said. Verse 5, Paul writes that we have been redeemed out from under the law that held us captive in our sins so that... For this reason, God would make those slaves into his sons. He would adopt. This is about family, is it not? That's the ultimate uh, message. That's the ultimate direction of the gospel story that God would take those in bondage to sin. He would pay the price by redemption so that they, we, by faith, would become the adopted sons, the children of God. So the purpose of God sending his son when the fullness of time came, being born of a woman and born under the law, was to redeem God's people by his own sacrifice on the cross. He redeemed us to take us out of slavery and the bondage of our futile efforts, efforts to merit the favor of God so that he would adopt us as his own children. I was reading this week that a more contemporary Lutheran pastor in Germany some 20 years ago, wanted to do away with a cross as a symbol of Christianity. And instead, they wanted, this gal wanted, as a pastor in Germany, wanted the the manger with the hay to be a symbol of Christianity. Why? Because it was more warm and charming. It was more positive and uplifting. It wasn't as threatening as the cross. Yet for those of us that know the Christmas story, We understand that Jesus was born in a manger and announced with great joy and glory because he came to die for the purpose of redeeming his people. He did this to buy us out of bondage to pay for our adoption papers, pay the cost of our adoption so that we might become the sons of God. Christmas is an important memorial for the Christian in that God sent his son. But that was not enough. As one author pointed out, the incarnation cannot save us without the crucifixion. The incarnation isn't enough. God became man for a purpose. And that purpose was to die, to pay the price, to redeem us out of our sin, to purchase out of slavery, and to do something with us. And that something is to make us sons of the living God. Jesus, Messiah, redeemed us as the Lamb of God who died to pay our ransom so that we might become sons of God. 
And this brings us to our final two verses in Galatians 4, verse 6 and 7. The work of redemption. This is what redemption accomplished. And I want to emphasize two words, if I could. The idea of belonging and the idea of security. Belonging and security. Verse 6 and 7. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, some might observe here that Paul only uses the reference to sons that are adopted. He doesn't speak of daughters here. Now, Paul is not leaving women out of this adoption process, but rather he has already affirmed to us that with God there is no distinction between male and female. Just back up to chapter 3 and read verse 28. There's not Jew or Gentile with God. There's not slave or free, male or female. We are all one in Christ. So we can take that idea that Paul is a sexist or anti-feminist, if you will, off the table. Rather, what Paul is doing here is using the cultural practice of the day because the cultural practice of that day was that a father's inheritance was only left to the son. So when Paul refers to us male and female as sons, he's actually declaring this is the guarantee of God. That just as was practiced in that day, the inheritance of the wealthy father would go to a son so you can be assured, whether you're male or female, that you are like that son. You will receive this inheritance. To write of the adoption of sons here in verse 5 is making a promise to all who believe that the inheritance of God's kingdom belongs to you. You are like that son. We are no longer a slave, but we see the inheritance of our father. So this emphasizes the reality that if we're spiritually sons to God, he's referring to sons and daughters. This is the redemption work. Male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave or free. God makes no distinction. He will make us all sons in that cultural context, guaranteeing that the inheritance belongs to us. And in this work of redemption, there's also the Spirit's presence, the Spirit of Jesus. All believers then, are to have the understanding that we have been adopted as sons and daughters by God, who is our Father. We've been inducted into His family through faith in His Son. And as a testament to this reality, to give us a taste of the loving relationship that God has established between us and this adopted child, to know that we are, are loved by God as an adopted one. We weren't born naturally into God's family. Does he love us just the same? The Spirit is sent to convict us of that reality. Is that not true? The Spirit is sent so that we can cry out to him, Abba, Father. That term Abba, it has the the interpretation, if you will, of Daddy or Papa. It's intimate, it is personal, and it's filled with compassion. The Spirit is the one that compels us to come to our heavenly Daddy, our Daddy Father. This is expressing the great love in this family relationship that God has established through his son. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, it speaks in this language of our older brother. Now that we've been brought in as a son and a daughter, 
to our Abba Father, we see Jesus differently. Jesus certainly sees us differently. Listen to these words out of Hebrews 2, verse 11 and 12. For he, for both he, Jesus, who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. Both Jesus and I, one Father, were made same in one family. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. If I look at my life, knowing how I sin and how I think, I would be ashamed to call me a brother of Christ. But not Jesus. Why? Because he's the one that sanctified me. So both the sanctifier, Christ, and the one sanctified, me as a believer, we have one father, and Jesus is not ashamed to call me his brother, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. Jesus, Messiah, is going to proclaim the name of God to his brethren. I'm not ashamed to call my my family my brothers. And I'm going to communicate them the glory of my Father in heaven. They're going to learn about God through me. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing praises of your name. This is what we've been learning about in our study of the Gospel of John, isn't it? That Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to send my spirit And he's going to communicate everything to you as my people, my brothers, about the Father that you need to know. This is our God working on our behalf. This is our Messiah, our brother, our older brother, Jesus Christ, caring for his adopted siblings. Jesus Christ was sent from God, having existed in eternity past with him. And now by adoption, because we've been sanctified by the redemption of Christ, we have this same Father in heaven as he does. And so perfect is his work of sanctification that Jesus says, I'm now not ashamed to call you my brother. By his Spirit, through his word, Jesus Christ continues to proclaim the name of God and to sing his praises to his siblings because that's what an older brother will do. God sent the Spirit of Jesus to us so that our big brother can continue to minister to us and to fill us with the praises of God. And when that Spirit comes, and it's talking about the indwelling presence of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that we receive the moment we come to faith, it is that Spirit that tells us, look, you can approach God differently now. Once he was your judge condemning you, but now taken out of slavery to sin and being adopted as one of his, you can talk to him as your papa, your father, not treating him carelessly, not dishonoring him, but knowing we can come before his throne of grace and we know we can find help and mercy to support us in our time of need. It's interesting, Abba Father is also how Jesus talked to God the Father. Well, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark 14, verse 36, Jesus, gathering there in the garden with his disciples, he cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Even in that prayer, do you realize our older brother is teaching us something about God the Father? This is where we witness the desperate plea of God's perfect Son, to his heavenly father. And we can say the father did not honor the first wish of Christ, but he most certainly did the second. He did not take away that cup from his son. 
but his will was done. And really, this shows to us, as adopted children of God, that we can trust our Heavenly Father, our Papa in heaven, in the same confident way, and be satisfied with the decision of God. He, he may not give us everything we ask for, but his will, yes, he will do that. In Romans 8, in verse 15 and 17, the Apostle Paul came, communicated the same reality to the church of Rome. For you not, have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, what again? Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and have children heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ who is our brother, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. This is what Paul taught to the Galatian believers. Jesus Christ was sent by God to redeem us by his sacrifice so that we might receive the adoption of sons. And the Spirit was sent by God so that we might know and experience the intimate love relationship that we have with his eternal family. God is our tender and compassionate Father, and Jesus is our unashamed brother who shows us his father. And this brings us to consider that we are our heirs through God. We are now heirs. If you're a believer here this morning, you're an heir to the inheritance, to the riches, to the possessions of God himself. Paul confirms with us again, verse 7, Therefore, you're no longer a slave. Don't consider yourself a slave. You're a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What is so different in this picture from a normal inheritance that we might receive from our heavenly father, or our earthly fathers, is that our heavenly father didn't have to die to give us this, but his son did. And because of his son's death, we're not only family name, we're not only carrying the family name as adopted children, but we are heirs to the riches and the glory of of God's kingdom, his eternal dwelling place. This is where we see security. This is where we're secure. Not only that we know we will be in heaven, but everything that God owns will be ours as well. In other words, you and I have need of nothing else. Nothing this world can give us we need. We belong and we have need of nothing because we're heirs of the kingdom. We own the possessions that God owns. Now, I'm not going to do a conclusion in the normal way today. And you'll note on your note sheet, I didn't include in a conclusion. No points anyway. But I want to give some closing thoughts just for our contemplation. And I'm going to give you three givens here. Given your adoption as sons and daughters, number one. Given how the Spirit works in you, number two. And given you are an heir to your father's fortune, number three. Let's start with the first one. Given your adoption as sons and daughters, does this alter how you value the family of God? Does it alter how you view the family of God? Where are your family loyalties right now? Would you say to it's your blood-born family or your Christ-blood-born family? Where would Christ have you place your loyalties? And I'm not proposing for one moment that we not take care of our own families. I just am asking, where are your priorities? Does it alter how you value the family of God? How we treat one another, how we live with one another, how we love and serve one another. 
Second, given how the Spirit works, that God himself sent the Spirit of his Son to indwell us, do you have a growing affection for your older brother and your Abba Father? Do you have a growing affection for not only God the Father, but our brother Christ? And by affection, what do we mean if not obedience? Spending time with him, talking with him, reading more of him, service for his family, caring for his family, meeting and fellowshipping with his family. How important are those things to us? And number three, given you're an heir to your father's fortune, does that influence your priorities in this life? What you're living for, what you're striving for, what you accumulate for yourself, what do you treasure? Now that we are heirs of the riches and the glory of God's kingdom, this is where our security lies. We don't need anything else. We simply don't. I know what I like in this life. I love certain things. I like my Christmas tree with my train. I love my motorcycle. I love certain things, but none of those should be priorities. I don't need them. The only thing I need is what my Father in heaven has given me as my inheritance. Is that enough? Is that enough? Father in heaven, may we all the more treasure what you have given to us in the sending of your Son and the sending of your Spirit to us. I pray that you would stir within our hearts as believers and and part of your eternal family the privilege that we have in just being related to one another, owned by you, delivered from the slavery of sin and made heirs of your kingdom, adopted as your children into your family so that we can say Christ Jesus is now my brother and he's not ashamed of me. I pray that you would infuse into this church people a greater understanding of our priorities, the affections that we have for you, for Christ, our Savior, the affections we have for one another. Father, help us to value this family that you have made. You've given us a natural desire to be loyal to our biological family. But Father, I am convinced we should have a greater loyalty, a greater affection and passion for those that your son redeemed by his own blood. Help us to treasure these things, to value what we've been given, and to honor you and your family and all that you've done by your son's redemption. We pray it in his name, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.